Wiser podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hello, I'm Cesar Mpofu-Walsh and welcome to the WISER podcast. Our focus is on science and technology studies in Africa. This initiative at WISER is led by Professor Richard Rottenberg. He and a team of colleagues at WISER have been assembling a network of people doing research on socio-technical assemblages in African contexts. They're in the process of gathering detailed case studies from 15 African countries, including Benin, Cameroon, Chad, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, Gabon, Ghana, Kenya, Mozambique, Nigeria, South Africa, Sudan, Swaziland, Uganda, and Zimbabwe. This is emerging work in a recent field focused on the amalgamation of techno-science with social, political, juridical, and cultural elements in concrete African contexts beyond the modernist binary of nature and culture. In today's podcast, we will feature two further case studies emerging from research in the Democratic Republic of Congo. First, we hear from Katrin Pape on the story of radiophonie in Kinshasa, before Sarah Gainan and Simon Maraisa on diving for gold on the Shabunda River. Between January 2015 and July 2017, I carried out ethnographic fieldwork on the usage of radiophonie, dual radio communication. This communication technology is probably most familiar as the radio system used by pilots, truck drivers and captains on ships. It is generally known as two-way radio, citizen band radio or CB radio. While CB radio technology is hardly any longer used for private communication in the highly technicized countries of the global north, it is still widely used in Kinshasa and the Democratic Republic of Congo. CB radio, known as radiophonie in Congo, consists of a network of radios that are dispersed across space and work up to certain distances according to the frequency of the waves that are defined in megahertz. Some of the Funis in Kinshasa communicate with people in places as distant as Wema, Chwapa province. Wema is about 1,000 kilometers from Kinshasa as the crow flies, but only reachable after days of traveling over roads and rivers. The users of a Funi network communicate all on one and the same particular radio wave. That particular radio wave is the channel where all the operators of the same network meet. When more intimate conversations need to take place, funny operators move to another frequency within the range accessible to their radio system. A funny operator speaks through a microphone that is attached to the radio device that translates his language into radio waves that reach another radio that translates them back into his voice and vice versa. The radio has several knobs of which one serves to move from one wave to the other and another one to adapt the volume. From far away, you can spot a funny installation by its long antenna, which sometimes even reaches three meters. My ethnography of this radio system showcases how the arrival of a new technology in Kazu mobile telephony creates the opportunity for an older technology, the two-way radio, to gain new importance. Even though many consider the technology dated, radiophonie is embedded within economies of trade and development aid in Kinshasa. I discerned two types of circuits in which it is used. 
The first type is a commercial circuit that serves private enterprises like transport companies running fleets of trucks driving back and forth between Kinshasa and towns in other provinces. The radio, although a mobile device, is typically placed in a compound, very often the compound where the phony operators themselves live, if they have space to do so, or in a compound where they can use some space, a corner or so, either for free or for a small fare. People in Kinshasa often speak of a maison de phonie, a phonie house, even though the radio itself is usually positioned outdoors, somewhere in a corner of a compound and on a small table. Although the radios are there to run the transport business and communicate with other operators situated along the road that truck drivers are passing through, and in Kinshasa most truck drivers do not have a radio in their truck, the business owners and the operators allow private people to come to the Funi house to communicate with relatives and friends. The second type is a non-profit circuit that serves NGOs to communicate with their staff running development projects far away from Kinshasa in areas with no or bad mobile telephony, as for instance in the central Congolese provinces Chopo and Chwapa. The NGOs also allow private people to their to use their radios to communicate with distant friends and relatives. And again, people in Kinshasa speak of going to a maison de Founi when they go to the compound where Founi is installed. While most Founis are part of the infrastructure of the two circuits, the enterprises and the NGOs, private individuals are given access to most of them. People usually pay the Founi operator a small fee, not even an American dollar, to initiate a call or receive one. The earned money is pocket money for the radio operator. The small fee is sometimes waived when one can evoke a kinship relationship with the, with the operator or the owner or after some banter. In 2014, when I informed my network in Kinshasa about my planned research project on phony conversations, most of my friends reminded me that this technology was outdated because of the nearly omnipresent availability of mobile phone technology. Some even thought that I would not find much material, but it turned out that this outdated technology has become revitalized and repurposed. The initial reaction of my friends was understandable against the background of their experience. I learned from them that during the 1990s, when there was a large migration of people from Kinshasa to neighboring Angola, Kinshasa's inhabitants longed for a call notification from the Funi house. Between the mid-1990s and early 2000s, a funny call meant that money was going to be sent from diamond diggers or diamond traders in Angola. In the 2010s, people dreaded a funny call notification because it usually meant that people in the village needed money or that bad news was going to be announced. More important, though, was another change. Since the mid-2000s, mobile telephones had become the new standard of distant communication. Even if not everybody owns a mobile phone, everybody knows someone who owns one, in Kinshasa at least. The coverage with mobile telephony, however, does not include the whole territory of this vast country. In Kinshasa, and among the better off people, mobile phones were universal already in 2014. Accordingly, many of my friends in Kinshasa had never set foot in a funny house in their life. Even if they cannot reach a person in a far-off place by phone, there is no reason for them to go to the Funi house, as very often the Funi communication is initiated by someone in the village, 
They may be called by the funny operator in Kinshasa on their mobile phone. The operator then puts his mobile phone next to the microphone of the funny and thereby connects between the mobile phone user in Kinshasa and the faraway respondent somewhere in the province sitting next to the radio. Parallel technical systems are thereby combined to extend their reach. This practice, better known as faire la liaison, or in English making the connection, literally indexes the complementarity of different generations of technologies in establishing a dialogue between the city and the village. The practice of making the connection illustrates how two standalone devices belonging to two different technological infrastructures are integrated into one infrastructure that the designers did not have in mind. The older the radiophony infrastructure at certain points gets updated or upgraded by integrating mobile phone devices in the communicative practice. In the remainder, I will give two illustrations of how technology shapes new forms of social life. Recently, new phony houses have been installed in Kinshasa to increase their total number even though the technology is outdated. The reason for this resuscitation is the inadequacy of the new alternative technology, the mobile telephony, plus the desire it has awakened. People with relatives and friends in such difficult-to-reach areas as Trapa and Chopo mobilized NGO groups to facilitate communication via phony networks. This means that a new communication technology has changed the understanding of how to keep contact with distant relatives and friends, and subsequently this new understanding led to the resuscitation of an old technology. The second example of how technology shapes social life relates to the image of the funny operator himself. Many funny houses of NGOs and enterprises are set up in the corners of compounds with private residents living in the main houses of the compounds. The residents are used to the hustle and noise of incoming and departing trucks or the coming and going of private funny customers who may hang out in the funny house for hours until a connection with a distant other is established. Yet the relationship between compound dwellers and the funny operator is often strained. Some even call the operator a witch, doki. This appellation has everything to do with the particular technicalities of the two-way radio system. The funny works better when there is a power blackout. Functioning electricity supply through the main lines causes interferences with the radio waves and thus spoils the radio signal so that communication becomes very cumbersome. Accordingly, when a blackout sets in, which is quite often and usually unannounced, the operator is happy as it makes his work easier and he can work on a diesel generator. Yet for the residents in the compound, just like for many others in Kinshasa, electricity provides the key infrastructure for the urban experience. When a blackout occurs, one often hears people sighing, we're returning to village life, an experience Kinshasa's inhabitants dislike. You need to clench and breathe out. We don't breathe like in the exterior world. It is more difficult because from that machine you need to absorb a lot of air. And then you need to block it because it comes in waves. After you absorbed it, you will see for yourself which quantity you need. But if you absorb too much, you get sores in your mouth because of too much air and pressure. 
We are in Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo. From this region, more than 11 tons of gold are smuggled out every year. This gold is extracted from open pits, through panning in rivers, or from underground tunnels. Some of these pits are remnants of colonial mining. Others have been dug more recently, using only shovels and chisels. However, faced with an increasing depletion of the most accessible deposits, Congolese miners have recently started to adopt new technologies, such as motor pumps to drain waters from the pits, or mechanized ball mills, which are locally assembled. On the rivers of Shebunda, one of the most enclaved and remote territories in the region, we find a fascinating floating dredging device. People refer to it as the machine. Decades ago, the practice of diving for minerals started in the borderlands between Angola and what was then called Zaire, where diamonds were mined. But eventually, a more advanced version of the dredge has made its way to the eastern Congo's river basin. The quote comes from Prince, a diver in his early 30s with working experience in a few rivers in eastern Congo. Now that day he had taught me how to breathe underwater with the very same gear as they do. A sort of garden hose had been attached to an air compressor. I admit, after three minutes, I became too self-aware of what I was doing and forgot to bite the tube. Air kept being pushed into my mouth, no longer towards my windpipe, but to my esophagus. I started to belch underwater and hastened to resurface. Prince took over. He told me he could stay immersed for over three hours. For him, it was a pneumatic reflex, a breathing technique very different from the one he uses outside of the water. He compared it to smoking. Imagine keeping a cigarette between your lips on either side of your mouth while you inhale and exhale. But then imagine that at a given moment, you need to bite it firmly so that no smoke is allowed in. In the end, it becomes a reflex that is coordinated between lips and teeth and synchronized with your breathing. The gold dredge is a technological assembly that involves metal engines, green plastic hoses and a floating pontoon made out of wooden pallets and empty blue plastic barrels. When we look at it a bit more closely, we can unpack and understand a few things. On one side, a diesel engine drives a water pump that drains soil and water via a suction hose towards a wooden sluice box. It's a simple mechanical pump that circulates whenever the engine is running pushing drained water outward. On the other side, a garden hose is attached to a mobile gasoline-fueled air compressor. In Francophone Congo, this compressor is called scaphandre, which is the French word for scuba diving gear. On the pontoon, a team of dredgers needs to keep both engines running all the time while a team of divers 
take shifts of one hour each. The diver's task is to guide the nozzle of the suction hose deeper into the riverbed. They do this half-blindly, using tactile knowledge to dig up gold-bearing gravel. But during their entire shift, for at least one hour, divers keep the garden hose clenched between their teeth to breathe. Now think back about the word scaphandre. It's derived from the Greek words skaphos and andros. Skaphos in classical Greek means boat and andros means human. So that the French word scaphandre denotes the relationality between human and machine. Scaphandre makes us understand that without divers who have mastered this specific breathing technique, the dredges are useless floating bodies. In a historical and even literary sense, scaphos and andros or scaphandre provoke the classic image of an underwater diving bell, which allows for underwater breathing. Think about Jules Verne's 20,000 leagues under the seas. But in a diving bell, you don't actively need to control your air supply with your mouth and teeth. You can see through the glass and don't need to keep your eyes shut. And surely there's no risk of a sore. In Eastern Congo, people use the word scaphandre to refer to the mobile air compressor itself. The motorized reservoir that trusts air. But if you want to understand how this entire gold dredge operates, how it successfully sucks gravel from the riverbed and brings this to the surface, where it's processed and eventually produces gold, then you need to understand the andros as well. Breathing techniques are one embodied component of the machine, but not the only one. Operating the machine also requires communication techniques. Prince told us how he communicated with the dredge operators on the pontoon. He sends a message when he thinks he found gold-bearing gravel. They encourage him to continue digging after they tested the gravel he brought to the surface. I can dig in the first layer and find nothing. And so I will go on to a second and I will let them know by signal that is, I will give three pulls, and in the meantime, they will test the result on the platform. If they find traces of gold, they will signal, signal me back, again three times. But if we find nothing, I return to the surface, and we will move the machine. After bringing it to the surface, the gravel is transported onshore, where miners treat it with mercury. Next to them, women prepare cassava and meat-based dishes. Old mattresses are strewn about under improvised tents for divers to rest in the shade while they wait for their next shift. When you zoom out, a human network of transportation unfolds, which moves processed gold out of Shabunda by plane or on foot to one of the nearby grass airstrips. From there, the gold will unforgivingly disappear in the cargo load of a bush plane. Through that very same network, 
the fuel that is needed to operate the machine is imported. Now when you adjust your gaze just a little bit more, you might also notice the technical expertise of local engineers who started producing suction pumps, air reservoirs and hoses very often in improvised workshops. As such, a wider socio-technical network is continuously maintained in order to make gold mining possible. Now divers pride themselves in their savvy and skills. They learn to master the scaphandre. But seen from a different viewpoint, it is the air compressor itself that commands how divers will breathe underwater. Now it is true, the air compressor size, together with its availability and affordability on the Congolese market, has allowed it to be integrated into artisanal and small-scale gold mining. But here, as our vignette demonstrated, we are miles away from a single standardized use of a technical equipment. At the same time, the translated and adapted equipment has stimulated the production of new professional techniques and skills. When divers say they breathe differently, well, then that is actively decided by the compressor itself. The machine has been adapted to be integrated into a specific contextually bound workplace, irrespective of its so-called original purpose.